0: On the Lunar Society podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sam Beckman-Fried, CEO of FTX. Thanks for coming on the Lunar Society. Thanks for having me. All right. First question. Does the consecutive, consecutive success of FTX and Alameda, does that suggest to you that the world has all kinds of low-hanging opportunities? Or was that a property of the inefficiencies of
1: crypto markets at one particular point in history? I think it's probably more of the former. I think there were probably just a lot of inefficiencies.
0: So I guess another part of this question is if you had to restart earning to give again, what are the odds you'd become a billionaire but you couldn't do it in crypto?
1: I think, um, I mean, they're pretty decent. Like, I, 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 a lot of it depends on what I end up choosing and how how sort of like aggressive I end up deciding to be. You know, there are a lot of pretty safe and secure kind of career paths from, you know, before me that definitely would not have ended there. Um, but I think that if I'd sort of, you know, decided to really dedicate myself to starting up some businesses, there would have been a pretty decent chance of it.
0: So that leads to the next question, which is that you've cited Will McCaskill's lunch with you while you were at MIT as being very yep. important in deciding your career. He suggested that you do earning to give at by going to a quant firm like um, uh, Jane Street. In retrospect, given the success you've had as a founder, was that maybe bad advice and maybe you should have advised you to start a startup or a nonprofit?
1: I mean, I don't think it was literally the best possible advice in that, like, you know, I that is what 2012 or something like, you know, think about starting a a crypto exchange would have maybe been a, a, you know, but but I think it's definitely helpful advice. And I think that, you know, relative to not having gotten advice at all, then um, I think it it probably helped quite a bit.
0: Right. But then there's a broader question of are people like you who could become founders? Are they advised to take lower variants, uh, lower risk uh, careers that um, in expected value are uh, less valuable?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think probably people are advised too strongly um, to go down safe career paths. But I think it's worth noting that, first of all, there's a big difference between what makes sense altruistically and personally for this. And you know, to the extent you're just thinking of personal criteria, uh, that's going to argue heavily in favor of a safer career path, because you have much more quickly declining you know, marginal utility of money than the world does. Um, so this is sort of like specifically for altruistically minded people. Um, the other thing is that, you know, when you think about like where or what is it that that sort of like is advising people to choose a safer route. Um, I think people, you know, will will often try and look to oh, well, what was the career advice that they got? What was sort of like, you know, what were sort of these outward facing factors that that you can see? But, but I think often the answer has to do something with them and their family. Um, Or them and, uh, you know, their friends or, or something much more personal. And, you know, when we talk with people about what they're thinking about doing with their career, you know, personal considerations and the advice of people close to them weighs really, really heavily. Um, on what decisions they end up making.
0: So I I didn't realize that the personal considerations uh, were as important in your case as the advice you got from Ian. I I don't think in my case,
1: but I think that in in the case of of many, many people that I talk to, they are. So speaking of
0: declining marginal consumption, I'm wondering if you think the implication of this is that over the long term, all the richest people in the world will be utilitarian philanthropists because they don't have uh, diminishing returns from consumption. They're risk neutral.
1: I mean, I wouldn't say all will, but I think there probably is something in that direction where people who are looking at sort of how they can help the world are going to end up being disproportionately represented amongst the most and maybe least successful.
0: All right, let's talk about effective altruism. So in in your interview with Tyler Cowen, you were asked, what constrains the number of altruistically minded projects? And you answered, probably someone who can start something. Now, is this a property of the world in general, or is this a property of EAs? And if it's about EAs, then, what do you think is about? Is there something about the movement that drives away people who t- could take leadership roles?
1: Oh, I think it's just the world in general. I think, you know, even if you ignore altruistic projects and just look at profit minded ones, we have lots of ideas for businesses that we think would probably do pretty well if they were run quite well, um, that we'd be you know, excited to fund. And the missing ingredient, quite frequently, for them is the right person or team to take the lead on it. Um, I I think that in general it's just it's kind of brutal starting something. It's it's sort of brutal being a founder. And uh it requires a, a somewhat specific but extensive list of of skills. Um and and I think that you know those things end up making it generally fairly highly in demand.
0: What would it take to get more of those kinds of people to go into EA?
1: Yeah. I mean I, I think part of it is probably just talking with them about, you know, have you thought about what you can do for the world? Have you thought about how you can have impact on the world? Have you thought about how you can maximize your impact on the world? And, and just sort of going down that path, I think a lot would be amenable. I think a lot would be excited about sort of thinking critically and ambitiously about how they can help the world. So I think honestly, just engagement is one piece of this. Um, and, and then another thing, I think you know, even within people who are um, you know, altruistically minded and looking at like what would it take for them to be more excited to be founders or, or or to be better at, I think there are still things that, that you can do. And I think some of this is about empowering people, and some of this is about normalizing the fact that when you start something, it might fail and that's okay. Um, and that you know, that's how most startups end, especially most very early stage startups. Obviously, this sort of changes over over time, but um but that you know when you look at sort of early stage companies. Um, You shouldn't be running them. Uh, You shouldn't be trying to build them to maximize the chances of having at least a little bit of success. Um, But what that means is that you have to be okay with the personal fallout of failing and that we have to build a community that is okay with that. And I don't think we have that right now. I think very few communities do.
0: Now, there are many good objections to utilitarianism. As you know, you said yourself that we don't have a good account of infinite ethics. Should we attribute substantial weight to the probability that utilitarianism is wrong? And how do you hedge for this moral uncertainty in your giving?
1: So I don't think it has super large impact on, on my giving, partially because in order to say so you'd have to have sort of a concrete proposal for what else you would do and what that would imply that would be different you know, actions wise. And I don't know that I've sort of been compelled by many of those. Uh, I do think, though, that there are a lot of things we don't understand right now, and I think one thing that you pointed to is is infinite ethics. Um, I think another thing is, and I'm not sure this is quite moral uncertainty. This might be physical uncertainty more so than anything else. But you know, there are a lot of sort of chains of reasoning people will go down that I think are like somewhat contingent on our current understanding of the universe in a way which might. Might not be right, and certainly if you look at like expected value outcomes, might not be right. I think you know say what you will about like the size of the universe and what that implies, but like you know some of the same people who make arguments based on well here's how big the universe is also you know think there's a you know think the simulation hypothesis has decent probability, um, but I think very few people sort of chain you know chain through them like well okay. What what would that imply? I don't think it's clear what any of this implies. I think in the end, if I had to say like, how have these considerations changed my thoughts on what to do, the the honest answer is that they have changed it a little bit. And I think the direction that they pointed me in is things with moderately more robust impact. And what I mean by that is there's sort of one way that you can you know calculate the expected value of of, of an action, which is sort of pretty specific and pretty much like here's what's going to happen. Here are the two outcomes. Here are the probabilities of them. You know, there's another thing you can do though, which is to try and say like, all right, like it's a little bit more hand wavy, but it's something like, I don't know, how much better is kind of you know going to make the world? Like, how much does it matter if the world's kind of better in like generic, diffuse ways? And I, I think typically, you know, EA has been pretty skeptical of that second line of reasoning. And I think correctly, because I think that usually when you see that deployed, it's nonsense. Like usually I think when when sort of people are, are pretty hard to nail down on like what the specific reason is, they think that something might be good. Um, it's because they haven't thought that hard about it um, or don't want to think that hard about it. And that, you know, the, the the much better analyzed and vetted pathways are the ones that you should be paying more attention to that being said, I do think that sometimes EA gets too narrow-minded and specific about plotting out sort of like courses of, of impact and this is one of the reasons why that people end up sort of fixating on one particular understanding of the universe of ethics of how things are going to progress, but that you know all of these things have some amount of uncertainty in them and when you jostle that, um, some some sort of like theories of impact and some models, behave somewhat robustly under jostling and some of them completely fall apart. I've become like a little bit more sympathetic to ones that are kind of like a little bit robust under thoughts about what the world ends up looking like.
0: So in the twenty uh, May 2022 yep. Oregon Congressional election, um, you gave $12 million to Carrick Flynn, who, um, whose campaign was ultimately unsuccessful. How have you updated your beliefs about
1: the efficacy of political giving in the aftermath? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was uh in first time that I'd sort of, you know, given to that scale uh in a race and you know did it because he was, you know, of all the candidates in the cycle the most outspoken on the need for more uh pandemic preparedness and prevention. Um you know, he he lost obviously. Um, you know, such is life. And I I, I think that, you know, in the end, there's some updates. I, I think Lots of sort of miniature updates on efficacy of various things, um, but you know, also, you know, I never thought that the odds were extremely high that he was going to win. It was always going to be a, an uncertain, close race. There's a limit to how much you can update from a one-time occurrence. Um, if you you know thought the odds were 50-50 and it turns out being you know close in one direction or, or, or another, right? There's sort of a maximum of maybe a factor of two update that that you have on that, and so. You know, I think that there were a bunch of sort of micro updates just on um, you know specific factors the race, but I think on a high level, um, uh, I don't think it sort of changed my perspective on uh, policy that much.
0: But does it make you think there are diminishing or possibly negative marginal returns from one donor giving to a candidate because of the negative PR increase? At
1: some point, yeah, I think that's probably true.
0: Um, so uh, continuing on the theme of politics, when is it more effective to give the marginal million dollars? To a political campaign or institution to make some change at the government level, uh, you know, like putting in early detection, or when is it
1: more effective to just fund it yourself? It's a good question, and you know, part of this is that it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, but you know, I, I think one thing here is looking at what is the scale of the things that need to happen, and how much are things like international cooperation important for it? When you look at pandemic prevention, you know, we're talking tens of billions of dollars. Uh, 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 of scale necessary to you know start putting this infrastructure in place so it's a pretty big scale thing um which is hard to fund you know to that to that level individually um and it's also something where you know we're going to need to have cooperation between different countries on you know what their uh you know surveillance for uh new pathogens uh look like and on you know vaccine distribution right like if you you know if some countries sort of Um, have great distribution of vaccines and others don't. That's not good. It's both not fair and not equitable to the countries that end up getting hit hardest, but also in a global pandemic, it's going to spread. And and so you need to have global coverage. And and so I think that's another reason that government likely has to be involved, at least to some extent, in the efforts.
0: Let's talk about Future Fund. So as you know, there are already many existing effective altruist um, organizations that do donations. Uh, What is the reason you thought there was more value in creating a new
1: one? What's your edge? So, you know, part of it is I just think that there's value in having multiple organizations. Every organization is going to have its blind spots and, you know, you can help cover those up if you have a few. Um, and, you know, if OpenFill didn't exist, maybe we would have created an organization that looks more like OpenFill. But, you know, there's some extent to which they are covering a lot of what they're looking at. You know, we're looking at overlapping but not identical things. And, and so I think having that diversity can be valuable. But... You know, pointing to what are the ways in which we sort of intentionally designed it to be a little bit different from uh, existing donors. Um, one thing that I think I've been really happy about has been the re program program um, that we've had. So we have you know a number of people who are experts in in various areas um, who we've basically donated pots to that they can regrant. And what are the reasons that we think this is valuable? One thing is just giving more stakeholders, you know, a chance to sort of voice their opinions in a way where we can't possibly sort of listen to everyone in the world directly and integrate all those opinions to come up with like the perfect set of answers. And so distributing it and letting them act semi-autonomously can help um, with that. Uh, But the, the other thing is that it really helps with large numbers of smaller grants. And so, you know, when you think about what, you know, an organization giving away $100 million in a year is thinking about... Um, if we divided that up into $25,000 grants, right? Like how many grants would that that mean? That would mean, uh, what, like uh, 4,000 grants, um, which is a, a lot of grants to, to analyze, right? Like, you know, if we want to give real thought to each one of those, we can't do that. But on the flip side, sometimes the smaller grants are the most impactful per dollar. And There are a lot of cases where someone really impressive has a really exciting idea for a new foundation, for a new organization that could do a lot of good for the world and needs $25,000 to get it started. Right? To like rent out a small office, um, to be able to cover salaries for two employees for the first six months. Um, Those are the kind of cases where sometimes a pretty small grant can make a huge change. In the development of what might ultimately become a really impactful organization, but they're the kind of things that are really hard for our team to evaluate all of just given the number of them. Um, but the regranter program gives us a way to do that. Where, you know, if instead we have, you know, 10, 50, 100, maybe eventually regrantors who are uh, you know, going out and finding a lot of those opportunities close to them, they can then sort of identify those. And, and, and direct those grants, and it gives us a much wider reach, and you know also biases it less towards people who we happen to know, um, which is which is good. We don't want to just like overfund everyone we happen to know, and underfund everyone that, that we we didn't happen to. So I think that's been sort of one initiative we've had, which I've been pretty excited about, um, and uh, you know I think we're gonna, we're going to keep doing. Um, and then you know I think another thing is what we've really tried to have a lot of emphasis on making the process smooth and clean. Um, there are pros and cons to this, but I do think that it sort of like drops the activation energy necessary for someone to decide to apply for a grant and you know fill out um, all of the forms and things like that. And so we've really tried to bring more people in the fold, you know, in, in terms of potential uh, recipients. If you make
0: it easy for people to fill out your
1: application and yep. if
0: it's generally uh, you're finding things that maybe other organizations wouldn't, how do you deal with the possibility of adverse selection
1: in your philanthropic deal flow? It's a really good question and of course that, that's a worry that you know Bob down the street might like you know see a great bookcase that he wants and be like, oh man, I wonder if I can get funding for this bookcase. It's going to house, you know, house a lot of knowledge. Knowledge is good, right? Um, uh, I, mean, I mean obviously would not that one I think we right. detect pretty quickly. Um, and, and I think the basic answer is that you know, we still have that on all of these. Um, and so you know, we, we have you know, we do have, have oversight of them, but what we also do is we do really deep dives into both all, all of the, so the large ones, but also into sort of samplings of all the small ones. You know, we do some oversight of all of them, but, but we will do really deep dives into randomly sampled subsets of them, which allows us to get a pretty good statistical sense of whether we are facing significant, um, you know, adverse selection in them. Um, you know, so far we haven't seen obvious signs of it, but we're going to keep doing these analyses and, you know, see if anything, anything worrying comes out of those. But that, that's sort of a way to be able to, um, you know, have more trusted analyses for more scaled up numbers of grants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a long time ago you wrote a blog post about how EA causes are multiplicative
0: instead of, um, instead of additive, and we just yep. talked about that a little while ago. Um, are, do you still find that that's the case with most of the causes you care about? Or are there cases where some of the causes of all you care about are negatively
1: multiplicative? Like an example might be economic growth and the speed at which you AI takes Yeah, I think it's getting more complicated. And I think that i mean, specifically around AI. You have a lot of really complex factors that point sometimes in the same direction, direction, sometimes in opposite directions. And I think that especially if what you think matters is something like the relative progress of AI re- safety research versus AI capabilities research a lot of things are going to have the same impact on both of those and thus confusing impact on you know, safety you know as a whole. Um, so I, I do think it's more complicated now. And I, I think it's not sort of cleanly things just multiplying with each other. I do think there are lots of cases where you see multiplicative behavior, but I also think there are cases where you just don't have that. And that you know sort of the conclusion of this is if you do have multiplicative cases, you probably want to be funding each piece of it. Um, but if you don't, then you probably want to be trying to identify the most impactful pieces and specifically moving those along. And 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 so I think you know we, our behavior should be different in those two scenarios. If you think of your philanthropy from a portfolio perspective, yep, is correlation good or is it bad? Eh. I mean, like I don't know. Expected value is expected value, right? Like, and, and maybe here's like one way to think about this. Let's pretend that there is you know one person in um. Uh, Bangladesh and another one in Mexico. And we have you know, one intervention that can you know we have two interventions, both 50 both 50, um, on saving each of their lives in particular, right some, some new, new, new drug that we could help you know release to combat some neglected disease. Um, and then there's this question of like, well, are they correlated? Like are these two drugs correlated in their efficacy? And, and my basic argument is it doesn't matter, right? Because if you think about it from each of their perspectives, right, the person in Mexico isn't saying, like, I only want to be saved in the cases where the person in Bangladesh is or isn't saved, right? Like, that's not relevant, right? They're like, I, I, I would like to live. And the person in Bangladesh similarly says, I would like to live. And, you know, you want to help both of them as much as you can. Um, and it's not super relevant. Whether you know there's sort of alignment or anti-alignment between the cases where you get lucky and the ones where you don't.
0: Um, what's the most likely reason that future fund lives, uh, fails to live up to your expectations?
1: I, I think we just like kind of get a little lame. Like we, we give you a lot of decent things, but like all the cooler or like more innovative things that we do just don't seem to work very well, and we end up sort of giving the same where same place, you know that everyone else is is giving. Wherever that that ends up being, and that you know we're not don't turn out to be effective at starting new things. We don't turn out to be effective at thinking of new causes or executing on them. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll avoid that, but it's always a risk. So should I think of your charitable giving as a yearly contribution
0: of a $1 billion or less or more, or should I think of it as a $30 billion hedge against the possibility that there's going to be some existential crisis that um, requires a
1: large pool of liquid wealth? It's a really good question. I'm not sure. Um, you know, we're going to start giving some we already have. We've given away about 100 million so far this year, um, and you know, we're going to start doing that partially because we think they're really important things to fund, partially because we want to make sure to start scaling up those systems and that process so that we're ready, um, and so that you know we notice opportunities as they come by and we have you know systems ready in place to give to them. Um, but I think it's something we're really actively discussing internally how concentrated versus diffuse we want that giving to be. And, you know, how much we want to be sort of storing up for one very large opportunity versus how much it's going to be sort of, a, you know, mixture of many.
0: When you look at a proposal and you think this project could be promising, but this is not the right person to lead it.
1: Yep. What is the trait that's most often missing? Uh, super interesting. Um, there uh, I'm going to sort of like ignore the obvious answers set, which are like the guy's just not very good, um, uh, which sure, fine. Um, and, and maybe look at cases where... It's someone who like is pretty impressive, but like I still think is not the right fit for this. Um, I, I think there are a few things I think one of them is how much are they going to want to deal with really messy shit? This is a huge thing. If you go to work for uh, like and maybe to give some example, like when I was working at Jane Street um, is a really great place. Um, you I had a great time there. One thing which I didn't even realize. Was, you know, valuable there until I saw the alter. You know, saw saw sort of what, what things could look like outside. Was, you know, if I decided that it was a good trade to buy one share of Apple stock, um, on NASDAQ, uh, I, you know, there's like a button to do that, right? Um, if you as a random, you know, citizen want to buy one share of Apple stock directly on an exchange. It'll cost you tens of millions of dollars in a year to get set up to be able to do that. Like, you gotta get like a physical colo, maybe like in it in you know Secaucus, New Jersey. You, you, like, like you know, you you have to like have market data agreements with these companies. You have to think about the SIP and about the NBBO and whether you're even allowed to lift on NASDAQ right then. Um, you have to build technological infrastructure to do it, but all of that comes after you get a bank account. And let's even talk about that stuff. Getting a bank account that's going to work in finance is really hard. Um, i probably spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of my life trying to open bank accounts. Um, and you know, one of the things at early Alameda that was really crucial to our ability to make money was having someone very senior spend um, hours per day in a physical bank branch, manually instructing wire transfers if we didn't do that we wouldn't have been able to do the trade um and when you start a company there's enormous amounts of shit that looks like that things that are like dumb or annoying or broken or unfair or not how the world should work but it's how the world does work and the only way to be successful is to do it is to fight through that and if you're going to be like ah whatever like i'm the ceo i don't do that stuff right then no one's going to do that at your company. It's not going to get done. You won't have a bank account and you won't be able to operate. So one of the biggest traits that I think is incredibly important for a founder um, and for like an early team at a company, um, but that is not necessarily important for everything that you might want to do in life, is being willing to do a ton of grunt work if that's what's important for the company right then. Um, And viewing it not as like low prestige or like too easy for you or something like that. But as whatever, this is the important thing. This is the valuable thing to do. So it's what I'm going to do. Um, that's one of the, 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 I think, core traits. And the other one is like, are they excited about this idea? Will they actually put their heart and soul into it? Um, or are they kind of going to be a little bit drifting and bored and not really into it and half asset? I think like those are two things that I really look for. How have you used your insights about pitcher fatigue to allocate talent in your companies? Uh, <laughs> um uh, so, uh, pitcher fatigue, um, is, uh, I haven't thought about this in a while, but, but my thesis back then, which I still think is probably true, is that when it comes to, to pitchers, um, in, in baseball, uh, there's a lot of evidence that they get worse over the course of the game. It's just the more innings they pitch, like they get worse and worse and worse. Partially, it's just like, it's hard on the arm, um, but it's worth noting that The evidence seems to support the claim that it depends on on the pitchers, but that in general, you're better off breaking up their outings. That like It's not just a function of how many innings they pitched that season, but also extremely recently. And so if you could choose between someone throwing six innings every six days or throwing three innings every three days, probably you should choose the latter. Probably that's going to get the better pitching on average and just as many innings out of them. Um, and Fort worth baseball actually has since then moved very far in that direction. like it you know, an average number of pitches thrown by starting pitchers down a lot um over the last five, ten years. Um, I, how do I use that in my company? Uh, well, there's a metaphor here, but I actually think I've gone the opposite direction, if anything. and 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 here's sort of what my sense has been in terms of, you know uh, computer work instead of like, you know, arm, like physical work, is that um, you don't have the same effect whereby like, uh, you know, your arm is getting sore and eventually your muscle snaps and you need surgery if you pitch too hard for too, long. like that, that sort of like doesn't directly translate. There's a little bit of an equivalent of this, of people getting tired, right, and exhausted. But on the other hand, context is a huge, huge piece of being effective. Having all the context in your mind of what's going on, of what you're working on, what the company's doing, makes it way easier to operate effectively. And if you could, for instance, have two half-time employees or one full-time employee, you're way better off with one full-time employee because they're going to have way more context than either of the part-time employees would have and thus be able to work way more efficiently. And so in general, I think our experience has actually been that like concentrated work is pretty valuable and that like if you keep breaking up your work and whatever it depends on the person, the context, but like, in general, if you do that, you're never going to be able to do as great of work as if you really dove into something.
0: So you've talked about how uh, you may experience relatively little when you're deciding who to hire, but in a recent Twitter thread, you mentioned that mentorship is, or being able to provide mentorship yep. to all the people who come on, that's one of the bottlenecks to you yep. to own a scale. Is there uh, a trade-off here where if you don't, if you don't um, hire people for experience and you gotta give them more mentorship
1: and thus can't scale as fast? It's a good question, but to a surprising extent, we found that the experience of the people that we hire has not that much correlation with how much mentorship they need. That much more important is how they think, how good they are at understanding new and different situations, um, and how good they are, and how hard they try to integrate into the, sort of their understanding of, you know, let's say coding, their understanding of how FTX works, and. Um And so I, I think that we actually have by and large found that like other things are much better predictors of how much, you know, oversight and management and mentorship someone is going to need than their experience at sort of similar looking roles. And how do you assess that short of hiring them for them for a month and then seeing how they did? It's tough. I don't think we're perfect at it. Um, but things that we look at, you know, do they understand quickly what the goal of a product is? And how does that inform how they build it. You know, when you're looking at developers, I think we really strongly want people who can understand what FTX is, how it works, and thus what the right way to architect things would be for that, rather than sort of like treating it as like an abstract engineering problem, divorced from whatever the ultimate product is. So being able to, and that's something that you, you can try and ask people like, hey, here's like a high level customer experience or customer goal, right? how would you architect a system to create that um, so that's that's one thing that we look for just an eagerness to learn and to to you know adapt um, it's not trivial to test for that but you can do some amount of that you can try and give people sort of novel scenarios and see how much they break um, versus how much they, they bend um, and I think that can be super valuable as well uh, and uh, and you know also kind of like specifically searching for developers who are you know, willing to deal with messy scenarios rather than wanting sort of a pristine world to work in. Um, because our company it's customer facing it has to face some third-party tooling. We've been a quickly growing company. All of those things mean that you know we have to interface with things that are messy in the way the world is.
0: Now, before you launched FTX, you gave detailed instructions to the existing exchanges about how to improve their system, yep. how to remove clawbacks, and so on. Looking back, they left billions of dollars of value on the table. Yep. Why do you think that was? Why didn't they just fix what you told them to fix?
1: Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question, and my sense is that it's uh, it's part of a larger phenomenon where it's the right way to put it. Like, so okay, one w- one piece of this is just like they didn't have a lot of market structure experts. Like, they just did not have the talent in house to be able to like think really well and deeply about risk engines. Um, And also there are cultural barriers between, you know, myself and some of them, which I think probably meant that they, you know, were less inclined than they otherwise would have been to sort of take it very seriously. Um, But ignoring those factors, I think there's something much bigger at play there where, you know, many of these exchanges had hired a lot of people. They'd gotten very large Um, and you might think that that meant that they got more able to do things because they had you know, more sort of like horsepower. But in practice, most of the times that we see a company grow really fast, really quickly, and get really big in terms of number of people, it becomes an absolute mess internally. There's huge diffusion of responsibility issues. No one's really taking charge. You can't figure out who's supposed to do what. And in the end, nothing gets done. And you actually start hitting negative marginal utility of employees pretty quickly Um, where the more people you have, the less total you get done. I think that happened to a number of them to the point where like, yeah, I sent them these proposals. Where did they go internally? Who knows? You know, the the like, you know, vice president of exchange risk operations, but not the real one, the sort of fake one operating under some department with an unclear goal and mission or something like that, who like had no idea what to do with it. And eventually just sort of like passed it off to a random friend of hers that she knew who was a developer for the mobile app and was like, you're a computer person. Is this right? And it's sort of like, I have no idea. I'm not a risk person. And that's how it died. And and I'm not saying it's literally that happened, but something sounds kind of like that probably happened where it's just like, it's not like they had like, you know, people who took responsibility. They saw this like, wow, this is scary. I should make sure that the best person in the company gets this and pass it to the TTO and like person who thinks about their modeling and said like, hey, is this thing scary? And they looked at it and they're like, wow, this might be a problem. I don't think that's what happened.
0: Now, there's two ways of thinking about the impact of crypto on financial innovation. One is the crypto maximalist view that crypto subsumes stratify. The yep. other is that what you're basically doing is you're stress testing some ideas from um, as, uh, in a volatile, fairly unregulated market yep. that you're actually going to bring to TradFi, but the, this is not going to lead to some sort of decentralized utopia. Um, so
1: which of these models is more correct, or is there a third model that you think is the correct one? So talk first about of all, who knows, right? Like, I mean, you know, who knows exactly what's going to happen? It's going to be path dependent. Um, but you know, if I had to guess, I would say a lot of properties of what is happening in crypto today will probably make their way into TradFi to some extent. I think blockchain settlement has a lot of value and can clean up a lot of areas of traditional market structure. Um, and uh, and I, I think that you know composable applications are super valuable um, and are going to you know, get more important over time. I think there are some areas of this where it's not clear what's going to happen. And I think that when you think about how do decentralized ecosystems and regulation intersect, it's a little bit TBD exactly where that ends up. Um, and uh and so I, you know i don't want to state with extreme confidence exactly what will or won't happen but i think some piece of this of like seem pretty likely to me i think stable coins becoming an important settlement um mechanism is pretty likely and i think blockchains in general becoming a settlement mechanism and you know collateral clearing mechanism seems decently likely to me um and uh and more and more assets getting tokenized seems decently likely to me um and, you know, there being programs written on blockchains that, you know, people can add to that can compose with each other. seems pretty likely to me. Um, and, you know, a lot of other areas of it, I think, uh, could go either way.
0: Let's talk about your proposal to the CFTC to yep. replace futures commission merchants with um, algorithmic real-time yep. risk management. Um, there's a worry that without human discretion, yep. you have algorithms that will be, that will Cause liquidation cascades when yep. they were not necessary. Is there some role for human discretion in
1: uh, in these kinds of situations? There is, and the way I think about it is, you have you know the the way that traditional future market structure works is you have a clearinghouse with a decent amount of manual discretion in it, connected to FCMs, some of which use human discretion and some of which use automated risk management algorithms with their clients. Um. And generally the smaller the client, the more automated it is. We are inverting that to some extent where at the center, you have an automated clearinghouse then connected to, you know, potentially connected to FCMs, which could potentially use, um, you know, discretionary systems when managing their clients, the, the key difference here is that one way or another, initial margin has to end up at the clearinghouse. A programmatic amount of it, and the clearinghouse acts in a clear way. Um, and the goal of this is, first of all, to prevent contagion between different intermediaries. So whatever decisions, whatever credit decisions one intermediary makes with respect to their customers, doesn't pose risk to other intermediaries, because someone has to post the collaterals of the clearinghouse in the end, um, whether it's the FCM, their customer, or someone else. Um, and so it, it gives clear rules of the road and lack of sort of systemic risk spreading throughout the system, and contains risk to the parties that choose to take that risk on, um, you know, the FCMs that choose to you know make credit decisions there. So I, I think that you know there is a potential role for uh, for manual judgment, um, but you know manual judgment it can be really valuable and add a lot of economic value. It can also be very risky when done poorly. Um, and uh, and I think that you know in the current system each FCM is exposed to all of the manual bespoke decisions that each other FCM is making, and that's a really scary place to be in. And we've seen it blow up. We saw it blow up with Elmi Nickel contracts, you know, and we saw it blow up in other cases, you know, with uh, uh, you know a few very large traders um, who had positions on at a number of different uh, banks and and you know ended up blowing out. Um, so. I think that this provides a level of clarity and and oversight um, and transparency to the system so that people know what risk they are or are not taking on. Are you replacing
0: that risk with another risk, which is that if there's one exchange that has the most liquidity in futures, and um, if that's what, if there's one exchange where you're posting all your collateral, so across all your positions, then um, the risk is that that single algorithm that the exchange is using is going to
1: determine when and if liquidation cascades happen. So it's already the case that you know if you put all of your collateral with a prime broker, um, then you know potentially whatever that prime broker decides, whether it's an algorithm or a human or something in between, is going to decide what happens with all of your collateral. And if you're not comfortable with that, you could choose to spread it out between different venues. You, know, you could choose to use one venue for some products, another venue for other products. If you don't want to cross-collateralize, cross-margin your positions, you get capital efficiency generally for cross-margining them, you know, for putting them in the same place. Um, but the downside of that is that you know, the risk of one can, can affect the other one. Um, there's a balance there. And you know, I don't think it's a binary thing.
0: Okay. Um, but given the benefits of cross-margining and the fact that less yep. capital has to be locked up as collateral, is the long-run equilibrium that the single exchange will win? And if that's the case, then in the long run, there won't be that much competition in
1: derivatives? I don't think it... I mean, you already could see that happening. I, you haven't... And I don't think we're going to have a single exchange winning. Um, among other things, I think you know there are going to be different decisions made by different exchanges, which will you know be better or worse for particular situations. And I think... You know, one thing that people have brought up is, well, how about for physical commodities, um, you know, like corn or, or or soy, um, you know, what what like what would our risk model say about that? And the answer is, it's not super helpful for those commodities right now because it doesn't know how to understand a warehouse. And so, you know, you might want to use a different exchange which had a more bespoke risk model that you know tried to understand, you know, have a human understand what physical positions you know someone had on. Um, I think that would totally make sense. And you know that can cause a, a sort of split between different um, different exchanges. Um, in addition, you know we've been talking about the clearinghouse here, but many exchanges can connect to the same clearinghouse. Um, and you know we're we're already as a clearinghouse connected to a number of different uh, DCMs, and so excited for that to continue to 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 grow out. And, and you know, in general, there are going to be a lot of people who have different preferences over sort of different details of the system and, you know, choose different products based on that. I think that's how how it should work and that, you know, people should be allowed to choose the option that makes the most sense for them. What are the biggest differences in culture between Jane Street and FTX? I think, you know, FTX is has much more of a culture of like, you know, morphing and taking on a lot of random new shit. And Jane Street has, it's still like it. I don't want to say it's like an ossified place or anything like it is somewhat nimble, but it is more of a culture of like, you know, we're going to be very good at the, at this particular thing on a timescale of a decade. Um, and there are some cases where that's true with FTX, because some things are clearly part of our, you know, core business for a decade. But there are other things that like, you know, we knew nothing about a year ago and all of a sudden we have to get good at. And so I think that there is, um, uh, you know, been more adaptation and, um, Uh, And it's also a much more public-facing and customer-facing business than Jane Street is, which means that there are lots of things like PR that are much more sort of central to what we're doing.
0: Now, in crypto, you're combining the exchange and the broker. They seem to have different incentives. The exchange wants to increase volume. The broker wants to better manage risk, um, maybe with less leverage. Um, Do you feel that in the long run, these two can
1: stay in the same entity given the conflict of
0: interest or potential conflict of interest?
1: I think so. And I think that the... uh, uh, there's like some extent to which they differ, but there are, I think, more sense to which they actually want the same thing. And harmonizing them can be really valuable. And one is to provide a great customer experience. And when you have two different entities with two completely different businesses, but that half every order has to go from one to the other, right? You're going to end up getting sort of like the least common denominator of the two as a customer. You're going to get only things that are, everything is going to be supported as poorly as whichever of the two entities support what you're doing most poorly and that makes it harder whereas you know by by you know synchronizing them um it it gives us much more ability to uh uh provide a great experience on that
0: how has living in the bahamas impacted your uh impacted your opinion about the possibility of successful charter cities
1: it's a good question i think it's i mean it's the first time you know i think it's updated positively a little bit i think you know We've built out a lot of things here, and that's been hopefully impactful. And I think, you know, it's made me feel like it is more doable than I previously would have thought. But it's also, it's it's a lot of work, like, you know, it's a large scale project. If you want to actually, and we have not built out a full city, like (laughs) we've built out some specific pieces of infrastructure that we needed. We've gotten a ton of support from the country and, you know, they've been very welcoming and there are a lot of great things here. And so this is way less of a project than just taking in a giant empty plot of land and creating a city in it. That 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 that's way harder.
0: How has having a RAM-skewed mind
1: influenced the culture of FTX and its growth? It's a good question. And I, you know, I think that what it means on the upside is that we've been sort of like pretty good at adapting and pretty good at understanding what the important things are at any time and at, you know, training ourselves quickly to be good at those. Um, you know, even if it looks very different than what we were doing you know before and i think that you know that's allowed us to you know focus a lot on product to focus a lot on regulation and licensing uh, to focus a lot on customer experience on, on branding and, and and a bunch of other things um uh, and, and 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 i think hopefully it means that we're able to sort of like take whatever situations come up um and provide sort of like reasonable feedback about them and reasonable thoughts on what to do um you know rather than sort of like thinking more rigidly in terms of how, you know, previous situations were. On the flip side, you know, I I think that it means that, you know, I have to have a lot of people around me who will try and remember what the most, you know, what the sort of like long-term important things are that might get lost day to day, you know, as we focus on, you know, things that pop up. And, you know, it's important for me to take time periodically to step back and, you know, clear my mind a little bit. And just think like, all right, let's try and just remember what the big picture is here. What are the most important things for us to be focusing on?